we tell a child, we say, um, I know you like to play with this ball, but it's not yours. You carried it home from your friend's house. Go give it back. They say, oh, but I like this ball. It's my favorite ball. Yeah, but it's not yours. Go give it back. Makes a lot of sense, right? Then what if the kid says, but I'm afraid. Oh, now what do we do? Why is the emotion of fear more a justification of keeping someone else's thing than the emotion of uh, pleasure? If the kid says, but it's my biggest pleasure in life, you say, well, sorry. You can't have your pleasure at someone else's expense. So if the kid is smart, he won't say it's my pleasure because that's not going to get him anywhere. Instead, he says, I have a fear. I am terrified of living without this ball. So what? It's the same thing. Because you, because you have a fear or a discomfort, that's why you may take somebody else's ball. So the same thing with stinginess. A person says, look, it's not that, I, that I'm so greedy that I need all the money in the world. It's just that I have this fear. I'm insecure. I'm not a chazer. I'm insecure. I say, well, well, in that case, we really have to think about what we should do here. No, we don't. Why is insecurity any more justified, any more valid than greediness? Either way, it's your issue. If it's your issue, then, then how does that justify taking somebody else's things? So the question is not what the issue is. The question is whose issue is it? If it's your issue, then, then you handle it, but not at somebody else's expense. Even to the point where you would say, theoretically, and I'll make a stupid example. If you say, if I don't have a certain amount of money in the bank, I will kill myself. I'm that insecure. I will die. And, and really, truly die. If I don't have a certain amount of money. And therefore, I can't give back what I stole. <laughs> I stole the money. But I must have it. Without this money, I die. You know what the answer is? So die. The Gemara tells a weird story. The Gemara says there was a guy fell in love with a married woman. And he kept pestering her. He wanted to have an affair. And she kept saying no. So he started developing symptoms of uh, frustration, of love sickness. And he started wasting away. He couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep. So they went to the rabbis and they said, uh, what can we do to save this guy? They knew the problem. Huh? The yeah. The yeah. They said, what can we do to save this guy? Is it okay if he just holds her? They said, no. Not allowed. They said, would it be okay if he just talks to her? Just to hear her voice. They said no. He said, would it be okay if he talks to her from, from the other side of a mechitza? They said no. Let him die. 
So she said, you know what? We can't let this man die. I'm getting divorced. I'm going to divorce my husband. And uh, so she came to him and she said, I made up my mind. I'm divorcing my husband. And then in two days, whatever, we'll take the other. And then we can be together. He said, ah, then I don't want. He was attracted to her because it was adultery. But the point of the story is, aside from the fact that Yetzirah means desire for that which is not kosher, even if you can have it kosher. But besides that, why were the rabbis so strict? Save the man's life. Let him talk to her. So the rabbi said, let him die. He has no right to her. And if you, and if you give in, you're violating and opening up a terrible precedent. So if a person says, but I need your money. Without your money, I'm insecure. So be insecure. I'll crack up. Crack up. I'll die. Die. You cannot cross that border into someone else's life because you need. And the proof of it is that when she offered to sacrifice everything in order to make him happy, it wouldn't work. He doesn't want it that way. He only wants it when it's not his. Which means that at the heart of this need, there is an evil. And the evil is, I want it my way. So it's not just a human need. It's a chutzpah. It's, a, it's an arrogant assumption. My way or nothing. Well, your way or nothing, so die. So when a person says, what do you think, I'm just a greedy slob who wants all the money in the world? No. I've had a hard childhood. I am very insecure, and this is my security. Oh, now you're entitled to everybody else's money. That's silly. It's not what your issue is. It's the fact that it's your issue. Now, where does, on, on a rung, on a scale of 1 to 10, where does that put it? If it's your issue... So what is the point of learning Torah? What's the point of learning Hasidus? What's the point of learning stuff that you may never get to do? Mitzvahs that you may never have the opportunity to, to perform? The point of studying Torah is that godliness becomes real in your head at least. At least in your head. So that, yes, you'll still get offended when you have nothing to be offended about, but you will get offended because your heart is still on the old track. You'll still get angry. You'll still get jealous and so on. But it won't be with this self-righteousness. You won't act like an animal and then feel justified also. So first of all, you won't get angry as often. Second of all, you won't get angry at the silly things. Third of all, even when you are angry, it won't last as long. 
And fourth, even while it lasts, it's not so violent. So you've basically taken the steam out of your animal nature. Because in your head you know, this whole thing is silly. What am I talking about? This chassid came back from a, a job that he did for the Rebbe, previous Rebbe's father. And when he came back to uh, Lubavitch, to the city, it was in the middle of a fabringen, the middle of a gathering, and he walked in and uh, stood there, listening. And at a break, while I was singing a song, the Rebbe motioned for him to come up. So he went up to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe said something to him, and everybody was kind of curious, wow, you know, the Rebbe called him, and he talked to him. And the guy comes back to where he was standing. So the guy standing next to him said, what did the Rebbe say? He says, I don't know. He says, what do you mean you don't know? The Rebbe was talking to you. What did he say? He says, I, I didn't hear. I didn't hear. He says, what do you mean you didn't hear? What were, what were you thinking? He says, I was thinking, how can the Rebbe stand to look at such a chazerish face? I was thinking, you know, poor Rebbe, he has to put up with me. And, and, and in the process, he didn't hear what the Rebbe said. So another chazer standing by said, boy, look at a guy absorbed in himself. <laughs> what an arrogance. So absorbed in himself. He's a chazer. He looks like a chazer. The Rebbe's looking at him. The Rebbe's talking to you. Listen. These are two levels of humility. Two levels of bittle. Of truth. The first thing is, the average person called up by the Rebbe in public, in front of everybody, for a special whispered, hey, hey. Not by this guy. Didn't even occur to him that he's being treated special, this is an honor, he's, he's a macher, he's a... Never occurred to him. Instead, he thought to himself, I'm such an animal, why does the Rebbe talk to me? How can he look at me? Which is wonderful. Wonderful. The man is, is in touch with reality. A tzaddik looking at a non-tzaddik, it must be very painful for him. On the other hand, there's an even higher level of bittal. Yes, it's true you're an animal. And it's very nice that you recognize that. But this is not the time that I'm just talking to you. Listen. Which is an even greater... In other words, he's not even conscious of his own unimportance. So there's the person conscious of his importance, or imagined importance. And then there's a the person conscious of his unimportance, and then there's the person who listens when you talk to them because they got nothing else going. They got no other agendas. If you talk to them, they listen. God says do it. They do it. Not because they want to be good. They have no other agenda. They're busy with themselves. The Rebbe used to see people three nights a week. Private, you know, private visits. Three nights a week. On the average night, it would be about 20 people to see the Rebbe. On a busy night, there would be almost 40 people. 40 people in one night. And the night began at 8 o'clock. 
And it ended, obviously when there are 40 people, it ended about 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning. And then the Rebbe would go straight to davening. There was one such night, and the Rebbe had a terrible cough. Turned out we found out later, it wasn't a cold, it was a chronic cough. Some irritation on the lung or something, which just wouldn't go away. And the Rebbe was coughing, and it was, it, was, it was painful to listen to. So finally, Rabbi Groner, who was the secretary in charge of the visitations, couldn't take it anymore. So he tells the next appointment to wait a few minutes. And he brings the Rebbe a, a thermos with some tea. He puts it down with a cup. And the Rebbe looks up and waves him out of the room. So he grabs the thing, and he runs. Anyway, people finish the visitations, and at the end, he would go in to see if there's any paperwork that needs to be done, a letter mailed or whatever. So at the end of all the visits, he went into the Rebbe, and he felt a little bit upset because the Rebbe had been annoyed. So he wanted to apologize. He didn't know, you know what to say. So he comes in and he says that the, the reason he brought in the tea is because the Rebbe was coughing, and he thought maybe it would be, you know, to take a few minutes, to take two minutes to drink some tea would help. So the Rebbe said, hot tea is six minutes. And why should someone wait in the middle of the night while I drink tea? It doesn't matter that the next guy in line to see the Rebbe, when, when Rabbi Groner had brought in the tea, that the next guy in line was a nudnik, a shmendrik, a pain in the neck, who was always there, he always had something to quetch about, he always had something to bellyache about, and if he had waited six minutes between me and you, if he didn't come at all, also wouldn't have been a tragedy. But that's the way I think. By the Rebbe, a Jew is waiting for me. How can I make him wait six minutes? Because I want to drink tea. Now, He's the Rebbe. People do wait for him. All night they wait to see him. So wait another six minutes. And the Rebbe couldn't see it. How do you make somebody wait while you drink tea? So that shows what the assumption is. The Rebbe's assumption is not a normal one. It's not the normal assumption of a person who says, look, I work hard, I put in a full day, I help a lot of people, I'm willing to help, you know, I'm putting out for all these people. Give me a break. I need six minutes, all right? <laughs> I got a cough. My throat hurts. Give me six minutes to drink the tea. That would be the normal assumption. Isn't it enough that I put in all these hours? I have to cough my heart out also? Isn't it enough I stay up all night to see these people? Isn't it enough that I'm concerned with their silly problems? It's not enough that I'm devoted beyond the call of duty? Can I have a drink of tea? <laughs> that would be the normal thing. But that's if you start with yourself. Look, I am. And I'm extending myself pretty far. Do I deserve a cup of tea? The other attitude is, if it's not an extension, I'm not extending myself. 
I am justifying my existence. Without this, I don't have to be at all. Never mind, drink tea. This is what I was created to do. This is not beyond the, the call of duty. This is what I exist for. Tea? In your free time, you drink tea. But if you're created in God's world, there is no free time. What does it mean free time? And here's the point I'm coming to. It's a long introduction. When a person says, I understand, I understand. I study Torah, I'm into it, I'm a Jew, I'm religious, I keep commandments, I am ultra-Orthodox, ultra-ultra-Orthodox, I'm into it. You got, I'm sold. The money is not mine, it's God's money. Working is not mine, only if God gives me permission. Um, dressing, marrying, I can only marry who God wants, I can only dress what God allows me to wear. Everything is, this is God's world. I understand that. I will never take a step without his permission. After all, this is not my kitchen. And I will never complain. Whatever God gives me is fine because I don't deserve anything. I didn't, I didn't earn or deserve being created. I, I have life and it's for free. I'll take what I can get without any complaints because it's more than I deserve. That's it. I'm in with both feet. But when you come along and you tell me Mashiach is coming tomorrow, I have my doubts. I believe in Mashiach, don't get me wrong. I'm an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> I believe in Mashiach. I say every day, I believe with a total faith that Mashiach will come. But Mashiach is coming tomorrow, I have my doubts. You hear what I'm saying? I have my doubts. The money is not mine, the house is not mine, the car is not mine, the shoes are not mine, my time is not mine, my existence is not mine, but hey, come on, I have my doubts. I'm entitled to my doubts. Why? Why are you entitled to your doubts and not to your shoes? So at the, in the end, at the end, it suddenly comes out, this guy has not doesn't get it, just doesn't get it. Turns out that he is the center of his universe. Just like the guy who says, God can't tell me what to do in my bedroom. Hey, it's my bedroom. <laughs> you can tell me what to do in the synagogue. You can't tell me what to do in my bedroom. So this guy says, what do you mean my bedroom? It's not my bedroom. Everything belongs to God. But I have my doubts. Hey, come on. God can't tell me what to doubt. Why? Because you can see yourself existing without shoes. You can see yourself being without a bedroom. But without my own head? Am I, am I entitled to my opinion at least? <laughs> no. Sounds terrible, huh? You're not entitled to your opinion. You're stuck with an opinion. Don't get self-righteous about it. A human being, unfortunately, has an opinion. And that's what he's got to work with. Of course you have an opinion. You also have an appetite. You also have a Yetzirah. You also have a mean streak. You also have a, a what is it called, a contrary streak. 
You want dafka the opposite of whatever you hear. So? It's like with anger. People get angry. They say, I was angry. What do you mean, why did I break the... I was angry. Why did I hit him? He got me angry. Or you even hear parents, the wise, mature adults who are in charge of raising their children. You actually hear parents say to their kid, don't get me angry. You're going to regret it. What does that mean? I mean, if you think I deserve a spanking, then spank me even if you're not angry. If I don't deserve a spanking, why am I going to get one because you're angry? So when parents say, don't get me angry, you're going to get, you get me angry, you're going to, you're going to regret it. What does that mean? People do get angry. Okay. We, we, but then, then it doesn't matter whether you're angry or not. Where do we get so self-righteous about this? You say, well, you know, that's human beings get angry. I know, human beings burp. This is part of the baggage that we're supposed to be working with. But it's something to apologize for, not to be self-righteous about. Just like jealousy and greed. Of course we feel it. Sometimes we even act on it. But at least when we're confronted, we blush. But when we're confronted about our anger, we don't see any reason to apologize. And that's what we're saying to the kid. We're saying, don't you're getting me angry. And you know when I get angry, I can be pretty violent. So well, isn't that nice? Same thing is true with doubts. We have doubts. God creates the world. God puts us into the world. God gives us intelligence. God gives us freedom of choice. God gives us commandments. Gives us a mission and a purpose for which to live. And we all come and say, hey, I got my doubts. So apologize. If it turns out that your husband was very loyal to you, and you suspected, you had doubts, and then you check it out, and it turns out it wasn't what you thought. Not at all. He's totally loyal. So what do you say? Huh? Look, I had my doubts. No. You blush, and you apologize, and you, and you ask for forgiveness, and you hope that, that it's forgivable. Because how could you have doubted such an honest man? says, look, I understand, give me all the commandments in the world, but leave me the right to have my doubts. That's why learning holy stuff, reading holy stuff, even if you don't understand the words, just looking at holy letters, holy combinations of letters, and absorbing them in your memory and in your eyes, makes God more real. It puts it puts 
reality into your perspective. Holy is real. Unholy is not. That's true about God and it's true about a Jew. When, you, when, when holiness is real to you, then you see every Jew in a different light. Because the holiness of the Jew becomes real, not just his personality, which is rotten. If you only see the person's personality, then you can't love every Jew. Because some are downright unlovable. But that's if you're talking about their personality. If you're talking about their Jewishness, if you're talking about their holiness, their godliness, every Jew is godly. Every Jew is godly. But then that has to be a reality to you. And it doesn't become a reality until you've absorbed godliness in other forms. Not necessarily the godliness of a Jew. The godliness of the Hebrew letters. The godliness of a mitzvah. The godliness of a godly concept. That when you wash your hands with water, you're bringing wisdom to the... That's godly concepts. So if your mind thinks godly, and your eyes see godly, and your, and your hands do godly things, godliness is slowly dawning on you from all directions until it becomes real and replaces the silly attitude that I have my rights. Yeah, in your house, you have your rights. But you don't have a house. In your world, you have all the rights. But you haven't got a world. A guy came to see the Magid. And he was very upset that the Magid lived in such poverty. Nothing. An empty little shack. And this guy was a wealthy man. And he couldn't stand this idea of living so... So he says to the Magid, he says, where's your furniture? Where are your possessions? Where's your furniture? So the Magid says, where's yours? Well, he said, I don't see any furniture. The Magid said, where's your furniture? I don't see your furniture. He said, what do you mean? My furniture? It's in my house. I don't carry it with me. The Magid said, me too. This is not our house. This is not our place. This is a mission. We're on our way. We're doing something. We want to schlep my furniture with me. The attitude of the wealthy man is, you know, you gotta, you gotta be comfortable. I mean, you gotta, you gotta be. Then you can decide whether you want to serve God, you want to serve uh, communism, you want to serve. Three gods, five gods, twelve gods, whatever you want to do. But, but you got to be. The Maggot says, be what? Be where? What are you talking about? There's only one thing that got to be, and that is your purpose in creation. What are you here for? That's, that's the only thing that got to be. When we start with this assumption, look, life is life. I am here. Let's see what I can make of it. No good. That's 
be the most you can be attitude. And it's horrible. It's horrible. It's decadent, it's narcissistic, it's stale, it's sterile. Be the most you can be. And what is the most you can be? Not much. 